Welcome back, creeps. Yo. Just had a heart attack because I thought I lost the uh, script for this week's episode. Six thousand words. Six and a half thousand words, yeah. That I was up till the wee hours this morning doing. So, uh, crisis averted. We're back on track. Hey, everybody. Hey. Welcome to another episode of Weekly Creep. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, the little Patreon preview, you'll see uh, we shared today. One of our Irish listeners reached out. They actually knew somebody who shared or somebody who raised one of the wallabies. wallabies. Yeah, off Lambay Island. <laughs> their name was Willow the Wallaby. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I shared their um, profile on Instagram today. But if you didn't see it, like reach out to me. I'll send it to you. It's lovely. That's cute. Yeah. But yeah, happy October, everybody. And uh, hope you got your costumes ready because I do. They'll say it's going to be none of your beeswax. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna do any spoilers. Uh, you'll see pictures on the day. I still need to get one more accessory, but then we'll be good to go. Also, I do have a bit of advice if you guys are planning to buy your costumes from Spirit Halloween. Um, I signed up to their email thing and like I signed up while I was checking out. So I already paid for my Halloween costume, but I got an email with a 20% off coupon, which is great though, because it turns out I need an accessory. So I'm going to go back and get my, my accessory from there and I'll get it 20% off. So, um, just sign up for their emails cause they give coupons. So right just, on. uh. Free tip from me to you. <laughs> that is good to know, though. Mm. When are we going back? I still haven't been. Um, probably this weekend. Nice. Yeah. They usually have like a couple of clothing items that are like year-round clothes for us. So. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that twenty percent off. The one that I got in the mail it said for one piece, so I might use it for a shirt that I saw. It's like a scream shirt where it looks like you're wearing a t like a a sweatshirt over a uh, flannel. It looks really 90s, early 2000s. So it was like, oh, it's like the Scream poster. Cool. Looks fucking cool. <laughs> right on. Um, also, the, one of the reasons why we released the Patreon preview last week was because Patreon finally got their finger out and updated their app. So the website still is a kind of a crappy layout. But the app now has a group chat setting. So anybody who is who has signed up to our Patreon has access to this group chat. So for only two dollars a month, it's good fun. Like there's a handful of us in there so far. If you're not if you are a part of pay, our Patreon and you haven't got the group chat yet, update the app or just download the app and get it that way. Because uh, I thought like initially I thought, oh, it's only the American um, listeners. But no, like because our UK people are on there as well. So, um, but yeah, and also thank you, Haley, who signed up just the other day. And uh, yeah, yeah, two bucks a month. It's the cheapest thing you'll buy. I promise you that. There's something like 90 things on there as well for you to watch, I think. So, yeah, get on that. And uh, yeah, give us a tarot card. All right. So today's tarot card of the day is the Eight of Cups reverse. So today's message Something that was once close to your heart now feels uninteresting or draining. Today, take some distance from that project or relationship. You may not come back to it. You may come back to it. You may not. What's important now is to replenish yourself emotionally and spiritually. Wow. So, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, we've got a lot of good feedback about Dulce's card of the day. And more people were saying... Like, well, I actually listened to like three or four episodes at the same time, so I'm not really sure how it works. But uh, <laughs> I'm still happy about it. So like we were, I think we said this, didn't we? It was like um, also shout out to our friend Ogre. He's the one who brought it to our attention first. Uh, he's doing a bit better these days, thank God. But yeah, we were like the right message will hit you at the right time, you know, mm -hmm. So don't worry if you're binging. Yeah, I've had um, there was a user in there. I can't remember. One of our patrons was saying um, that she like didn't listen consistently, but like when she does listen, like the messages always hit her, like when she needs to hear them. 
which is fucking cool. And that's just, I'm like, that's that spirit, baby. It gives you what you need when you need it. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, with that, I think we're going to get stuck into this episode. I'm going to try to look at the camera more than at the thing, but I have got a lot written. So anyway, bear with me. When we left off last week, we had just wrapped up a delightful wedding ceremony, which was organized by Charles and Joey and took place in the Garden of Corpsewood Manor. Charles, who had been invited to join the Chicago Orchestra, serenaded the quaint crowd of attendees with Wagner's Wedding March, while Joey walked his dear friend Joan down the aisle and gave her away as a father would. Look at the uh, our Instagram post from last week. There's actually a photograph of Joey kissing the bride and the groom pretending to not know what's going on it's cute like that there's pictures of everybody who attended the wedding and stuff the grounds of corpsewood had made a beautiful setting for the wedding as charles and joey had personally cleared the land when they first moved to their property just a few years earlier they'd also built the house and the outbuildings and were even in the process of preparing a, i have a pond here but it was going to be a, like a natural swimming pool behind the house the work never stopped but I don't think that they wanted it to. Charles, at least, always seemed to have some sort of project on the go, whether it was delightfully devilish depictions on stained glass or planting crops of fruits and vegetables to feed himself, Joey, and the endless stream of visitors who just kept coming to the uh, to Corpsewood specifically to get Charles's homemade wine. I feel like he would be like this couple would fit right in with all the other off grid youtubers yeah because it's like if they're they're also always doing projects like they're never stopping they never stop improving on their land or doing projects yeah and i think uh basically if youtube was a thing in 1982 mm -hmm. they would have been on it because oh yeah when i mentioned last week mother earth news the magazine like charles was literally writing like blog posts mm -hmm. and sending them into this magazine to be like you know so yeah you're right their goal was to become totally self-sufficient, but they also weren't completely naive. They knew this would take time and they were also on a very strict budget. These quote unquote homosexual devil worshippers had become a bizarre staple in their rural, rural, in their rural community. It's such a dumb word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for the most part, they enjoyed the random visitors who would take the drive up Dead Horse Road at all hours, completely unannounced. But they also weren't naive about this either. It was known that the two lads would usually greet visitors with fresh baked goods and the delicious homemade wine. And the people who would show up during the day seemed a little bit of like an older crowd, maybe a bit more respectful. And they would like bring their own fruits that they had grown on their land or just bought or whatever. Uh, watermelon wine was mm -hmm. somebody had uh, requested that he make and i think he brought a load of watermelons and that's was amazing like, yeah that sounds amazing uh one of the locals was called zeke and he was a nudist oh look at that yeah he'd just show up thong out and happy and everyone knew him like this conservative southern like mountain town basically or mountain what yeah. the word hamlet maybe uh -huh. like not quite a village um they were just completely accepting Mm -hmm. of oh that's just zeke it's not nude it, it is nudity it's not sexual it's just yeah zeke. he means well yeah and he was the entire nudist colony <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? and then the more regularly clothed locals were also quite fond of the guys too so corpsewood had seemed to become sort of a rite of passage among the younger crowd too people who didn't really know charles and joey only the gay devil worshippers in the woods and of course, also like these bullshit rumors that just because of this moniker, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, like kids are fucking terrible anyway. So as soon as there's like any sort of like seed, rumors are going to grow from that, you know. But it was the kind of place where like a bunch of kids would drive up just to tell their friends that they had been there. But if they actually went to the house, the odds are Charles would greet them and offer them a drink, regardless of their age. Mm. This was a bit of a double-edged sword because for most people, it was a cool one-off experience. For Charles, he would rather face these not uninvited visitors with kindness rather than hostility with the assumption that they would in turn treat him the same way. Mm. 
the house was his and Joey's sanctuary and it was filled with valuables, antiques and per personal treasures, I think more so. So if you remember last week, I said that he would usually take these uh, surprise guests at a picnic table outside. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't actually bring them into the house until he had kind of... Uh, like they, they had earned bedded them. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then once they had, he would take people in and just show them, like, because he was proud of the house that the two of them had built together. Mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, the two had also constructed what would become known as the chicken house, which was a three-story building used primarily to house chickens. <laughs> okay, they decided to make the top floor a sort of guest room. These buildings weren't up to code or anything. You know what I mean? It was very much like the first floor was a uh, brick building. And then here's my microphone. And then after that, it was just like wooden structure and there was no stairs. It was just like a ladder mm. and hatches. Right. But the top floor would be a sort of guest room. So people didn't have to sit around in the uh, freezing cold at the picnic table, you know. Mm -hmm. The ground floor was an actual chicken coop with cages and all. The second floor was where they stored bottles and jars. And I'm assuming that they did a lot of pickling and making jams. And of course, the corpsewood or the famous corpsewood wine. And then the third floor was what would become known as the pink room. Now, the pink room got its name because Sonny and Cher roll. Remember from last week? Mm -hmm. They used to go to flea markets and buy like... I can't remember. They had some name. It was just basically like a look of the draw kind of thing. It's like, look, this is $50. You get whatever crap is here. Mystery box. Yeah. And this one time they happened to get a bag full of random <laughs> pink paint. So they gave it to Charles. Yeah. And some bakeries do that with their cake. It's like a cake or a cake mystery bag. That's what Carl was talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about Carl, but I, I saw it somewhere where it's like when you go to the cake shop and get like a bag of cake like it's literally like a bag of unused cake they just stuff it in a bag and you just buy it's just it it's a pillowcase full of <laughs> and you buy it and you eat it but it's like it, like the video made it look like it was a bad thing but honestly like i'd be down yeah i'm okay yeah <laughs> the last thing we need in this house is more fucking cake anyway the pink room would be the seed that sprouted so many rumors and I can't say they were, weren't totally unjustified. There was a wood stove in the corner and two mattresses. And as far as I can gather, nothing else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking at a screen. A lot of news websites went on to say that it was like full of whips and chains. But I really don't think that was true. Yeah, it's probably more like cute, kitschy little cute things. Maybe, but... From the couple of pictures that I have seen, it looked like it was just a bare room mm. with these weird little mattresses and stuff. But you also have to remember that Charles and Joey were on a really tight budget. Mm. So maybe if they had had that particular room for a few more years, it would have been more full of stuff. Mm. No, but I think it was just like as random crap came up, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we'll throw that into the pink room. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, there wasn't a stairs up to the room, just ladders and a hole in the floor. And... This is where Charles would take those guests that showed up to avail of the free booze and who were looking for a place to get high and not worry about getting caught. So while Charles didn't partake in drug use, he did hang out and party and he definitely got frisky with those guests who were willing. Mm. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We do not kink shame here at Casa del Creep. Fucking right. And one of Anton LaVey's essential beliefs was like... Do whatever it is that pleases you as long as you and your partners are consenting adults. Okay. This was something that Charles loved about Satanism after being oppressed by strict rules in his younger life. But like I said, this pink room became the heart of a lot of rumors. And while I can't dispel them all, I will say I read most of two different books. And the one that I opted to use for the main source for this thing was the less dramatic of the two, the more seemingly factual driven of the two. And that one didn't spend a whole lot of time on what could have potentially gone on in the pink room. Mm. But one of the biggest rumors that appeared um, after, like later on, was that Charles and Joey kept a logbook of sorts 
uh, documenting all of the comings and goings of their guests and their sexual escapades. Hmm. It was said that the police found and hid this book because it contained some damning information about some local bigwig. I don't personally think that this is true, but I don't know everything. What I will say is that it was brought up by only one witness during the trial afterwards, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Brad Bonnell denied having found it. Mm. And they went through this place. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Avery Brock had become a frequent visitor to Corpsewood by late eight, 1982 after his brother had introduced him to Charles and Joey. Born in 1965 to Joel and Betty Joe, Brock was one of six kids, but his dad died when he was just six years old. His mom ended up marrying Dewey Lawrence, uh, who was a, quote, harsh disciplinarian. And by the sounds of things, young Brock got the brunt of the abuse. Mm. I'm not sure why it was. Maybe it wasn't just Brock. But anyway, he had an awful time growing up. Mm. At age 17, he had already dropped out of high school and worked odd jobs here and there. Not like real on the books jobs, but like mowing lawns, hauling pulp wood in a truck, even though he didn't have a license. Yeah. Like what? Gigs. Oh, gig. Yeah, I thought you said like pigs. I was like, no. pig work. <laughs> and one of his buddies, Joey Wells, introduced him to his uncle, Tony West, in November of 1982. And in Tony, Brock found the father figure he didn't know he didn't need. Tony West was 30 in 1982. And to 17-year-old Brock, he must have seemed like one very cool cat. He wasn't, though. He was an absolute fucking douchebag. He lived in a dilapidated trailer that his sister owned but had moved out of some time ago because it was a dilapidated trailer. And it was placed next to the one where she actually lived with her husband and five kids. It had no electricity, no running water, and it was pure, unadulterated American freedom. And freedom was something that West cherished because he had just been released from prison a couple of years earlier. In fact, he had been quite lucky to have been released so early. He got out after serving just 18 months of a three-year sentence for the attempted murder of his brother-in-law. He had attempted to flee, but ended up handing himself in. And while he was being booked, the police discovered that he had actually escaped from another prison five years before, where he was serving two sentences for petty larceny and bail jumping. And it doesn't end there. It was one of those strange cases where, like, a southern court was stupidly lenient He was offered a plea deal of no contest, admitting that he fully intended to kill his brother-in-law that day and so didn't have to serve what was left on his old sentences. They were just like, oh, whatever. Um, And he didn't have to face any charges for his, like, escape from prison. Yeah. But this used to be a thing, specifically in Texas, actually. Uh, Like, way back in Wild West. I know this is still technically the Wild West, but, like, back in Billy the Kid's day, I'm pretty sure if you escaped from prison, mm-hmm. it was like, all right, sentence is over. Yeah. Like you've done your, you managed to get out. So we yeah. failed. So that's it. That's interesting. So I don't know whether it was like some weird hold over there. He had shot his brother-in-law twice in the back, once in the head and once in the stomach over a card game that I think was taking place in the afternoon. What the fuck? Yeah, it was like a Tuesday afternoon or something. Miraculously, the chap survived. And then there was also a horrific accident when West was 15. He had been out shooting cans with a shotgun just out the back of his house and his older sister came out and told him that he was upsetting her two-year-old son Horace Lee. This is the South. West sulked back into the house and pointed the gun at the child thinking it was unloaded or so he claimed but the child's death was ruled accidental. In all likelihood He acted on impulse and immediately regretted what he had done. Wow. But at the end of the day, he killed his baby nephew and got away scot-free. What a shithead. Yeah. It also kind of reminded me an awful lot of like Ed Kemper's story, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, for I'm sure everybody does, but if you don't know who Ed Kemper is, like he killed his grandparents when he was 15 as well, right? He was only 15. I forgot all about ed kemper like all the details and stuff oh well he did anyway but his was extremely intentional whereas tony west kind of got away like by the time the police showed up he was blubbering 
and like he was a mess saying like i didn't mean to do it i didn't mean yeah. to do it didn't he like didn't kemper like keep his grandparents his grandma's head around or some shit like that no nah, that was his mom a few years oh, later his mom okay lovely chap west and brock did have a fair bit in common though west's dad had also died when he was young and his mother had remarried a fella that west didn't get along with and another thing they had in common was the fact that they loved sniffing that sweet tootaloo. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Because neither of the lads really worked. They couldn't afford real drugs. So they would take this tootaloo crap, which was just, uh, and I'm going to be saying tootaloo a lot <laughs> in this episode, but they would take this. It was just a bunch of solvents all mixed together in a bleach um, bottle that they would keep on hand. That sounds safe. Yeah. And then what they would do was soak a rag in this toxic tonic and then put the rag in a plastic bag and then huff the bag. Gross. Yeah, it sounds awful. But they would inhale these fumes and get as rickety wrecked as they could, right? <laughs> rickety wrecked. And just for the record, it's toot a loo, not toot a loo. <laughs> I reached out to our friend Ogre to see, because uh, Ogre is from like close enough a couple of hours from here so i was like hey have you ever heard about of this toodaloo stuff and he said you mean like what your aunt says when she's leaving <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i was sitting here and uh, it like really gave me a good giggle ogre is a comedian so yeah yeah naturally made us laugh yeah um but he did <laughs> confirm that he had heard people say a toot of cocaine oh interesting. rather than a bump so maybe it is like a a more like that's what something you from that area he's yeah. he's from alabama oh. and like uh, georgia and tennessee all like meet up there okay in like near enough to corpsewood i think i'm not sure what the timeline was like here but it seems like west's nephew introduced him to brock and then brock must have moved into west's trailer like almost instantly weird yeah and at this point brock had been frequenting corpsewood for a while before he got involved with west but Apparently, it was all he would talk about. He was obsessed with the place and really wanted to bring West to go check it out because he wanted to impress him. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, he yeah, wants yeah. to be like, come up here, like, we'll score some free wine. Like, the dudes are all right. You know, they're just yeah, a couple yeah. of old queers. Like, that was the kind of mentality behind these guys. West wasn't interested at all. But after a couple of weeks of Brock pestering him about it, he was like, yeah, all right, fine. Like, let's go, let's go. It was one evening in early December when the two turned down the unpaved dead horse road and arrived unannounced at Corpsewood Manor, where they saw Charles pottering around, finishing up some chores. Brock introduced West and Charles invited them into the guest room, which would later become known as the pink room. They hung out and drank some of Charles's wine. I'm not sure if the lads had been sniffing their toodaloo or not, um, but they got pretty buzzed anyway. And I'm almost sure that there wasn't a day where these guys weren't sniffing that stuff mm. now i don't know that joey ever really hung out in the guest room to be honest um when the lad showed up he was actually tidying up in the house after dinner because remember joey cooked all yeah, the meals yeah. um and then he went to bed on his own like didn't come out to say goodnight or anything like that and this seemed to be his nightly routine and another local actually said that later on i think pretty much after his crash remember joey had yeah, a bad yeah. crash yeah i don't think he really left corpsewood that much at all mm -hmm. like if the there was supplies needed or anything charles would just go in to town on his own yeah yeah and joey just stayed at corpsewood mm -hmm. west was starting to drift off on one of the mattresses but came to when he realized that charles was actually performing oral sex on young brock now like i said earlier the rules of the satanic church strictly say that sexual acts between consenting adults is fine. But Brock was only 17 at this time, mm. as far as I can tell. Now, Wes didn't freak out or anything. He just kind of observed, observed what was going on. But when Brock realized West was looking, he became quite uncomfortable. Mm. Um, West was someone he looked up to after all. And this was gay stuff, you know. Charles offered to do the same for West, but he politely declined. Again, West had been in prison and stuff, you know what I mean? He knew yeah. what dudes do when, you know. Interesting. Yeah, they're alone. And he didn't bring it up after that. He was just like, all right, 
whatever. But while they were driving back home, Brock became extremely defensive, saying, I ain't no damn queer. And apparently West was just like, all right, like, fine. I, I didn't say a word. Yeah. And he would kept kept changing the subject to talk about something else. But I don't know whether he was like being really passive aggressive about it or something. Mm-hmm. But the the more this went on, like Brock didn't trust him enough to not tell people what he had seen. I see. Trust him enough to live with him, live with him, but not to like open his mouth about shit. Yeah, right. It's weird. So, yeah, West kept changing the subject, but Brock kept going. He was spiraling and starting to say that Charles had taken advantage of him and gotten him so drunk that he didn't know what was going on. West kept insisting that he didn't have to worry about him telling anyone. And like I said, I don't know what state anyone was in that night, but the next day, the cold light of sobriety made Brock even more embarrassed, more paranoid and more angry about the whole situation. The less West said, the deeper Brock's turmoil seemed to sink. And after a few hours of huffing that toodaloo, he finally turned to West and said, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. With that, the two got deeper and deeper into their bags of poison. And under West's guidance, they came up with a plan. If they were going to do this, they would need to make it worth their while. And Brock had been inside the house and knew that it was full of cool shit that he assumed was worth a lot of money. He even believed that Charles's prize harp was made out of solid gold. Like it was a gold colored harp. Yeah. He just assumed it was solid fucking gold. Because he's so fucked up on drugs all the time. And he's only 17. Yeah. So in their solvent skewed states, they decided that they would visit Charles and Joey real casual like. And when their chance arose, they would tie them up and torture them until they told them where they had buried all the money. Then... Once the devil worshippers had spilled the beans, they would be promptly disposed of, and then West and Brock would be the owners of Corpsewood Manor and live there uncontested for all of time. Like it was a fucking pirate ship or like, something. Like, literally everyone knows about the owners. Like, you They're know, local about Joey legends, and Charles. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You think no one's gonna... That's how you... There's, yeah, they're, they're truly fucked up yeah. on drugs right now. But this was the kind of headspace that they were in. Yeah, because of the drugs, yeah. Yeah. And I think they were just so stupid, like, Yeah, that sounds about right. So the more they talked of this, the more they convinced themselves. And on Friday, December 10th, they went to Corpsewood to carry out their diabolical plan. Upon arriving at Corpsewood, though, West discovered that Brock had forgotten the gun. Brock thought a hunting knife would do the job, but had failed to think of cute little Lucifer and Beelzebub, the English mastiffs that... Charles and Joey kept at the house. Cerebrus 1 and (laughs) 2. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The plan would have to wait. They couldn't go back later that night, like like Brock suggested, because he had foolishly forgotten something else. West's sister Myra had arranged for the good reverend to come out to the trailer for Bible study, and they couldn't miss it. Two days later, adequately Christianized, Hung over from a heavy weekend of drinking and huffing and armed with Brock's dead dad's gun, they returned. They weren't the only ones in the car though. West's nephew, Joey, who had introduced Brock and West, he had planned to spend the night riding around with his friend, Teresa. They weren't quite boyfriend and girlfriend at this stage. But his car had broken down, so his mom picked her up to come back and hang out at the trailer for the evening. There was like a football game and all on, right? So when Brock came back with the gun, West was in Myra's trailer with all the family watching TV. And so Brock settled in. They watched the game. He walked in with the gun and just placed it down beside him. But this was such like common happenstance that they're like, yeah, oh, they must be going like shooting rabbits or something. Yeah. When the game was over, West invited Joey and Teresa to go riding around with them, knowing full well what the real plan was. The whole situation was strange to me. Um, Joey and Teresa had no idea what they were getting themselves into but I think the real reason West asked them to to actually go was because his car was running on fumes and he didn't have any money for petrol mm. Joey rummaged around in his jeans and came up with a dollar eighty, which was enough for a pack of Marlboros and a dollar's worth of gas right okay he had to bum that off of his own nephew wow you know yeah 
And with that, they said they were going to take a spin up the Corpsewood for some free wine. Now, I also think that West invited them along as a distraction for Brock. Mm. But they were all huffing that crap the whole time, like while driving. You know what I mean? Very unsafe. <laughs> I bet you they weren't wearing seatbelts either. But they made it to Corpsewood and Charles welcomed them as he seemed to welcome everyone. After all, he knew West and Brock at this point. So he invited them up to the guest room in the chicken house, lit the stove because it was a cold night, and then he went to get the gang a plastic bag for their huffing needs and more of his famous wine. Now, I found it really hard to gauge the atmosphere of this whole scene because straight off the bat, Charles seems totally happy to oblige and provide for these spontaneous guests. But there's also an immediate edge to the whole situation because regardless of size or gender, Charles is outnumbered four to one. Yeah. Joey is back in the house. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a sense of like, these guys aren't polite or anything. It's not like, oh, hey there, Mr. Scudder, like, you know, could we have some of your nice wine? It's like, hey, go get us that wine and bring back a, a plastic bag for our stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, and Charles is just being polite. I don't know if it's out of fear or out of naivety. If the stories about Charles is true, uh, like his abilities and um, like his spiritual abilities and like in divination and stuff like that, he probably had a gut feeling. Maybe. Yeah. So it was probably out of fear. So while Charles is off getting their supplies, Brock whispers to West that when Charles comes back, he'll run down and grab the gun. And West says, we can't do that, man. We got Joe and Teresa with us. Hmm. I'm picturing Wes to be like Matthew McConaughey, but he's not cool enough. You know what I mean? No. Suddenly it becomes clear to Brock why Wes had invited them in the first place. Oh, yeah, because he was too chicken to go through with the plan. And so Charles comes up and they party with their toodaloo and wine. And Charles was actually like quite anti-drug, surprisingly, but he wasn't going to stop anyone from practicing free will. But I say Charles was surprisingly anti-drug because he had worked for like I can't remember the official title, but remember like the drugs, the division of whatever college he used to work for. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they all partied and enjoyed themselves well enough. But when it got late and they decided to go back home, West's car refused to start. And so they went back up to the guest room to stay warm and picked up where they left off. Only this time, Brock went hard, huffing that toodaloo uh, to the point where he was, quote, on his knees with mucus dripping from his nostrils. He disappeared through the hatch saying he was going to go find more toodaloo, um, but returned with his dad right with his dad's rifle. Still, they didn't do anything. And Charles actually laughed and did finger guns towards him before getting back to his conversation with West. Even when Charles stood up to adjust the kerosene lamp and Brock pulled a hunting knife out of his boot and tackled him to the mattress, Charles still thought this was a joke or some kind of kinky play. But when Charles... But when Brock started slicing the bedsheet into strips to tie his arms behind his back and West grabbed the gun and aimed it directly at him, he finally got the picture. The two started to bind Charles by the ankles and wrists and Joey and Teresa, appalled and terrified, ran for the hatch, fly down the ladder and out the door and down Dead Horse Road. Now Charles is doing his best to calm the lads down and is actually shocked when they ask him where the money is because he simply didn't have any. Mm -hmm. They were... I think he had $40,000 in the bank and that was supposed to last him and Joey for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. But I think he just assumed that everybody knew that, you know? Yeah. But again, Tony West is a dumbass. Yeah. And Brock is a kid. Yeah. Just as dumb. Just as dumb. Yeah. But he still assured them that he would help them in any way that he could. He was like, look, everybody, let's take a breather. You know, I'll sort this out. I'll get you guys money, but you're going to have to wait kind of thing. West ran after uh, his nephew, Joey, and Teresa. There was only one way out of Corpsewood, and he knew that they would be going back to his sisters. But when they didn't respond to his calls, he shouted, by God, if I have to come after you, I'll shoot you both and leave you up here. He then fired a warning shot, and the two came rushing back. Young Joey tried to talk some sense into his uncle, but as far as West was concerned, everything had gone too far now. The three of them sat in his car, had a cigarette, and West seemed to calm down a bit. When he turned the key in the ignition and the car failed to start yet again, he looked in the rearview mirror, met Joey and Teresa's eyes and said, you see, this was meant to happen. 
They went back up to the pink room where West and Brock argued over what to do next. I think West was taking a bit of a back seat to see just how far Brock would go, maybe. Mm-hmm. He was kind of pushing it, see how serious he was. Kind of like he was saying, this is your mess. I'm just going to go along with things. So Brock descended the ladder and crept up to the house where Joey was still cleaning up after the supper. So that's what I'm saying. I, I have no idea of the timeline of this night. It all seems to like happen over hours and very quickly at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they were there long enough to go back down to the car after having their wine and whatever and come back up to the room. And you know what I mean? All this deliberating and all is going on. And yet Joey is still down the house cleaning up after supper. Like, yeah. And a little trigger warning here because this does get quite graphic. Brock tapped on the glass of the door to get Joey's attention. And when Joey realized he had a gun, he turned to run. All poor Charles could do was listen from the pink room as Brock unloaded his gun into Joey and the two English Mastiffs who had made the lads feel so safe in their dream house. When he was done, Brock went and got the rest of them. Joey and Teresa were absolutely terrified and in complete shock and poor Charles was completely broken. He hadn't made a sound. When they got to the house though, it was a bloodbath. They forced Charles inside and there, lying dead on the floor, was poor Joey. Charles let out a muffled scream through his through the gag in his mouth, hung his head and started shaking it back and forth. Brock and West didn't have any time for mourning though and told him to just step over him. They forced him onto the couch in the study and continued their interrogation. They would ask him questions, rip the gag out of his mouth. Joey would either say nothing, tell them he didn't have anything or whatever, and they put the gag back in his mouth. But doing this over and over again, it actually loosened the gag. And with all this back and forth going on and on, Charles just got fed up. He stood up and started walking towards Joey's body, completely ignoring West's demands to sit down. And with that, West pulled the trigger and shot Charles in the back of the head. The gag in his mouth had been sufficiently loosened and his last words were, I asked for this. Eerily similar to the painting that we mentioned last week. And another thing, I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but they actually ended up putting five bullets in his head because I don't know whether it was, I don't understand guns, but anyway, it took five bullets to kill him. And in this painting, there's like five fucking holes in the head of the painting. It the self-portrait, to the be self-portrait. clear. self-portrait, yeah. I mean, I'll have a picture of this painting up here. But uh, yeah, so that was like too eerie to not mention, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I thought it was just like because like a crown of thorns or something, it was just too on the nose. West and Brock started going through every nook and cranny looking for the treasure. And like they were so stupid that they genuinely believed that there would be enough cash in this house that they would just be set for life. Like they were thinking, that's it. We'll find this corpse wood treasure and we'll run off to the Philippines and nobody will ever come looking for us. Like, So Brock went upstairs while West stayed in the study, keeping an eye on his nephew and Teresa in case they tried to run again. Then he sent Joey up to Brock to help them collect what little treasure they had found. And in a gross turn of events, he then tried it on with Teresa, his gross. nephew's kind of girlfriend. Yeah, like this dude is a fucking slime ball. Suddenly, harp music and the sound of Charles's voice came from an upstairs room. He had been recording himself earlier that day, reciting a poem to a piece of music for a friend's birthday. And now Brock was stealing the battery powered tape recorder and accidentally hit play. But I mean, mostly for Teresa. But this was fucking terrifying for them all. Like all of a sudden there's this man's dead body and they're hearing his voice emanating from upstairs. Like, you know, and they're all high as fuck. Uh, Yeah, actually, I I didn't even think of that. Teresa declined West's kiss, but she was afraid of him more than anything, you know. And soon they loaded whatever they managed to steal into the back of Charles and Joey's little Jeep. The antiques that were actually worth money were left behind because Brock and West didn't know what they were. Yeah. There was like a bronze statue of um what's it Me- Mephistopheles? Mephistopheles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah uh, the author was like if they hadn't known what to look out for this was basically the one thing that really would have bagged them some cash. Yeah. 
but they didn't. They looked at it and they're like, oh, I don't know, it's the statue of the devil and moved on. Like, so finally it was time to leave. But remember, they were having car trouble. Mm-hmm. So Brock pushed their car using the Jeep and they ran off the road and fucked up the car's suspension. Okay, managed to get it back on the road and West told Brock to hang back a few minutes so no one saw the two vehicles together. And then when Brock went to start Charles and Joey's Jeep again, um, when he was on his own, it was just completely dead. Like it wouldn't turn over for him. Mm. It was a weird thing, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. the first time it started up no problem and I had been on for a while while they fucking jimmied this other car out of the ditch. Mm. It, again, just another little weird occurrence. He ended up having to push it for 20 minutes before it just randomly decided to start again. But when he got to the trailer, the others still weren't there. They had run out of gas and Brock just drove randomly back up the way they had came. And the three of them were like walking down the street like, yep, car ran out of gas. Like, this is how disorganized this whole fucking evening was. West told Joey and Teresa that he'd killed them like both of them, no questions asked if they said anything to anyone. He then sold his car to Joey for $7 because that's all that was in the house and then proceeded to take the license plates off of his car because he had actually stolen them off his own mother's car anyway. (laughs) Just dirtbag, right? That's all he is. Brock and West told their families that they had just been offered a big fucking, uh, (laughs) a big fucking construction job down in Florida and they'd called in a few days, and with that, they pissed off in Charles and Joey's Jeep. Their plan was to head to Mexico through Laredo, Texas. And they drove through the night and into the next afternoon, eventually ending up at a little rest area in Bovina, where they slept from afternoon until the following morning. They were coming down from all the toodaloo, drinking, and adrenaline. So the following morning, they woke up and found just one other car in the rest area. Kirby Key Phelps's Toyota. So I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've already listened to the first one because why, why wouldn't, wouldn't you? you? Yeah. <laughs> but at the beginning of last episode, I explained that Kirby was on his way home um, to his mom for Christmas. And mm-hmm. sadly, he picked the wrong rest area to stop at. West held a gun on him and forced him to walk up into the woods saying he wouldn't kill him if he didn't have to and that he was just going to tie him to a tree. They had bound his hands with handcuffs that they had found in Corpsewood. And while Brock was busy loading the stuff from the Jeep into Kirby's Corolla, he heard the sharp crack of the gun emanating from the trees. Now, West claimed that he swung for him, that Kirby swung for him when he undid the handcuffs to tie him to a tree, but it's anyone's guess. Yeah. So after they discarded of Charles and Joey's Jeep, they discovered Kirby's wallet in the glove box of the Corolla. and All they got out of it was $33. They continued on for Mexico, but in Dallas, they picked up a hitchhiker, much to Brock's dismay, and hightailed it to Austin with this dude because he knew where they could pawn stuff easily and also knew a topless bar that they could hang out at. It was easy pawn. Right. It's like a chain of pawn shops that is still like it's they're still around. Yeah. But the thing that was easy about it, I guess, is all you needed was a driver's license. Oh, okay. But Brock actually used Kirby's ID Mm. and so got away with it. They stripped the car. They didn't sell any of the Corpsewood stuff Uh, like they had only they had stolen like candelabras and nice plates and a few other things, but nothing like that of immense value. Mm -hmm. So when they got to the like. I guess they pulled into a parking lot near the Easy Pond in Austin and started like taking the the stereo out of the car, the speakers and whatever else they could. And that's what they pawned off. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe they thought people would be looking out for some of the Corpsewood stuff. Mm. But I don't think that they're even that intelligent to think that far ahead. Like, And I know for a fact that they hadn't listened to the news or read a newspaper at this point either. So I don't know. That night, they hung out with their hitchhiker friend at the Titty Bar in Austin. But Brock, who was only 17 after all, got absolutely shit-faced and demanded that the hitchhiker should get lost. And then he started causing a scene. Um, Even at one point, West walked out of the bar and saw Brock hanging out of Kirby's Corolla with a gun 
like just waving it in the air, like and just being belligerent, right? So it was around this point that West just left him. He was like, man, fuck this. Like, this kid's a, a liability. I'm out of here. He had already told the hitchhiker to go back to the motel room because he was like, look, I don't know what he's capable of. It's best to just... If you just fuck off. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Meanwhile, back in Georgia, Teresa had spilled the beans to West's sister, Myra, Joey's mom, almost immediately. The poor girl was traumatized, but Myra knew her brother well enough to take his threat seriously and didn't call the police for fear of Wes just like giving up on his Mexico idea and just showing back up at the house or the trailer. So Teresa stayed with Myra for a couple of days. I think Myra was thinking, well, if I contain her, we'll all be okay. Like if she just gets over it. But like Teresa also had a kid and stuff too. You know what I mean? So it was Teresa, her kid, Joey and his four or five siblings, Myra and her boyfriend or husband all in this one trailer yeah and Teresa's not sleeping or anything because she's so fucking scared yeah so after a couple of days she goes back home to her parents and four days after the murder she finally comes out and tells her folks what had happened Charles and Joey's bodies had been found within a couple of days thanks to one of their friends coming by to check in on them Raymond Williams aka Little Goob right known as Little Goob because his father was Big Goob (laughs) I love that. Yeah. He called in the day after uh, to Corpsewood just randomly just to see how everybody's getting on mm-hmm. or to get like some wine or something. And uh, he saw that the Jeep wasn't there. So he's like, all right, well, I guess they're in town getting whatever. But then when he called back the next day and the Jeep still wasn't there, he got concerned and got out of the car. And he didn't actually enter the house, thankfully. But as he approached the back door, he saw bullet holes in the glass of the interior Mm -hmm. uh, kitchen door. And so that was all he needed to see. He drove like three or four miles to the nearest neighbor to call the sheriff on their phone. So it was already known that these guys were dead. And when Teresa told her parents, her dad convinced her to do the right thing. And her and Joey Wells spoke with the police and just told them everything with that. Brock and West became wanted men all over the country. So when Brock woke up in a cheap motel room in Austin following his escapades at the bar the previous night, he realized that he was all alone. Hitchhiker was gone. West was gone. All the money was gone. He had never left Georgia before. West was probably in Mexico already. He had no money, no spare clothes. He didn't know what to do. So he decided he would do what most young scared boys would do. He left the motel and stuck out his thumb to start making his way back to his mommy. West wasn't in Mexico. He was scared too. Just a day or two in Texas made him quickly realize that he couldn't speak a lick of Spanish and he was already feeling completely lost in his own country, you know? Mm -hmm. He had also, other than his stints in prison, had never really left Georgia before. And so with this, the idea of running away across the border lost all of its romance. And instead, he just drove back the way he came. Like, random. Like, he didn't just drive straight back. He just kind of aimed towards home. Mm -hmm. So on December 20th, eight days after the Corpsewood murders, Betty Jo Lawrence got a call from her son, Avery Brock. He had made it to a gas station about an hour and a half from home. He was hungry, broke, and exhausted. He told his mom that it was all Tony's fault. He had no part in it. And she told him to wait where he was. She then called the police and they picked him up and got his version of the story. Now they already had Teresa and Joey's version of the story, which they assumed was true. And it was. So they just accepted whatever Brock told them. But West was still wanted. Mm -hmm. So four days later, just after 9 p.m. on Christmas Eve, 1982, West pulled off the I-24 onto the 4th Street exit in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Out of money, out of ideas, out of gas, he rolled Kirby Phelps' Corolla into a gravel lot behind a restaurant where it choked and died. It was pouring rain and West was wearing Kirby Phelps' brown three-piece suit as he sat in the car smoking a cigarette. When he was done smoking a cigarette, he got out and just began walking aimlessly around town. The night he had split with Brock, he went back to the bar to see if he could find them and instead ended up 
driving one of the waitresses back to Dallas. Like random. Yeah, I think it was his own fear and being like almost kind of like the way people with ADHD are like, oh, I'll just get this done and then I'll go to Mexico. You know what mm. I mean? But like he didn't try to rob the girl. He didn't. Yeah. You know, he just was like, I'll bring it back to Dallas mm-hmm. and did. And then he like slowly meandered his way back east. So in Chattanooga, he called his sisters on a payphone and learned that he was indeed a wanted man. And then he continued to walk around for an hour or two, just contemplating. Finally, he had enough. He stumbled upon a Chattanooga cop car in a pub parking lot and walked up to the car, waving his arms. The officer rolls down the window and says, can I help you? To which West replies, sopping wet in Kirby's soggy suit. I give up. Take me to jail. The cop figured he might have just been like trying to find somewhere to spend the night mm-hmm. out of the rain, get some like hot food or whatever. But he didn't seem the type. I'm thinking because he's wearing a fucking three piece suit. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? So the cop searches his name. And gets no information. West is literally telling the chap that he has murdered people and needs to go to jail. And this cop can't find out what he's talking about. He asks him who he killed and West doesn't know he's like uh i can't remember the names it was like the big one and the small one a couple of dogs was in georgia literally this is the fucking conversation and the cop is like all right uh hold on don't go anywhere west still hasn't seen a newspaper or anything yeah and the cop isn't putting two and two together because all he's been seeing in the papers was homosexual devil worshippers found slain in the woods you know in their castle in the woods yes So anyway, the the cop wants to help. So he says, all right, look, I'll drive you over to Georgia, which is only about like Chattanooga is on the border of Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. So he drives about five minutes and, you know, he's like, then we'll see if we can lock you up over for murder over there. I think he's kind of half joking at this point. So lovely. They drive over the state line and the Tennessee cop leaves West in the car while he goes in to see his Georgia cop buddies. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting any results either for West. So they're all just hanging around shooting the shit while the dispatcher's like just calling all these things. Yeah, I have this dude here. He thinks he's after murdering somebody. I don't fucking know. And I'm assuming that the lady, that the dispatcher lady is the woman from Twin Peaks, you know. Um. So anyway, some of the other departments that she spoke to had literally sent sheriffs to West's trailer to collect evidence. And they're like, Nah, man, I don't don't know what what you're talking about. I'm thinking some of this is because it was Christmas night Mm -hmm. or about Christmas Eve into Christmas morning. So maybe like it wasn't a full fucking team or something. Yeah. Anyway, the whole time. Or they were all on Toodaloo. (laughs) Yeah. That Chattanooga Toodaloo. (laughs) Yeah. But either way, this whole time, West is sitting soaking wet in the cop car outside. And while the dispatcher is calling around, Uh, Another cop in the station is reading a newspaper and thinks, huh, I wonder is this the guy from this story that I'm reading about right now in my fucking hands? So they call Chattooga County, which is different from Chattanooga. Chattooga County is where Corpsewood was and finally realize what's going on. They were looking for Samuel Tony West, but the name in the system was an alias that he sometimes used, Tony Wells West. Mm Mm-hmm. What a goof him up, right? Yeah. They still couldn't even arrest him, though. Because a cop had knowingly crossed over state lines with him in the car. <laughs> he was outside of his jurisdiction now. So if they put cuffs on him at this point and his lawyer finds out about it, the whole fucking trial will get thrown out of court. Wow. So because West hadn't actually been arrested yet, like they hadn't read him his rights or anything, the Tennessee cop... Drives him back to Tennessee, followed by two Georgia cops. Yeah. And then his supervisor pulls up and is like, hey, what's going on? And he explains, he's like, look, this dude's after murdering at least two people that I know of, um, but I can't arrest him. I'm waiting for the sheriff to come from Chattooga. And the supervisor's like, well, I mean, I need your help here. So you're just going to have to let him go. What? Yeah. <laughs> so with that, West was set free. Wow. Yeah. Like... These Georgia cops were literally sitting there watching this happen and they couldn't do anything about it. The supervisor, whose name was Sergeant Boykin, right? This literally sounds like fucking naked gun or something. Fuck. 
this Sergeant Boykin literally said, you can go ahead and walk across into Georgia if you want. It's up to you. And then just drives off into the fucking night like this mass murderer. Yeah. Anyway, thankfully, West was so fucking exhausted and soaked to the bone that he was like, all right, fuck it. Like, he gets into the car with the Georgia cops and they just drive him back to the station that he had just come from. Like, it was something to do with him being extradited. I don't fucking know. West was confused. I'm still confused. But finally, just after 1 a.m. Christmas morning, 1982, Tony West was arrested. The story had absolutely blown up in the nearly two weeks uh, that West had been on the run. The police had found what they claimed was, I guess, bondage or BDSM gear. Uh, there were human skulls that were real, at least two of them, um, satanic literature and three vials of labo laboratory, laboratory grade LSD. So one vial was completely dry, another was leaking and drying up, and the third was still perfectly intact. The vials, like, I guess just over time, the seal, like, wore out. So the stuff just dissipated, like if you left the lid off alcohol or something, you know? It's not like they were being used. But the strength of this stuff would equate to, like, thousands of hours of fun, <laughs> um, apparently, anyway. And the general theory is that Charles had taken them as souvenirs from his time working at the college in Chicago. So it's not like he was, like I said earlier, Charles was really against drug use. I think he had seen like the effects yeah and he was just like this is a bad time but yeah the fact that this was like lab grade lsd like that's the stuff of legend you know yeah, yeah, yeah. people were calling the cops with all sorts of bogus claims which prolonged everything uh someone said that they were like you know doing human sacrifices on the land um and probably the cops wouldn't have taken this seriously but the guy was like no 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 you have to check like this one particular spot on the land it's like fresh graves and all you're you're gonna find bodies there so they had to call in like an excavator and all that kind of crap and they're what there was nothing there you know what i mean it was all just fucking hearsay and people going nuts west at one point even said that he had only gone to Cor to corpsewood to tell charles and joey about his christian god spread the good word and all that but while he was there charles used lsd and something supernatural to take over his mind. So while he was possessed by Charles uh, or a demon or a demon and Charles, he killed Charles to free his soul on behalf of Charles. Yeah. Now, they never came out and said this like in court. I don't think mm -hmm. it was. I think they tried it maybe at the start and then they went back to like, oh, let's just say he drugged you or whatever but afterwards anyway this was one of west's kind of theories to try and get him i think uh a lesser sentence yeah pretty much eventually west and brock were both charged with robbery kidnapping and the murders of charles scudder joey odom and kirby key phelps west was sentenced to death and brock was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences west wasn't put to death and according to the daily mail of all sources they are both still alive. Uh, it looks like West is actually serving his sentence in a mental health facility or something along those lines. So I'm guessing maybe that's how he got out of his death sentence. Mm. You know, claiming like there was something wrong with him or something like that. I genuinely did look like that book that I used. Uh, the reason why I didn't read the entire book is because I think there's like 600 pages of court script in it. Um Anyway, I did want to include this quote from Magistra Peggy Nadramia, who was a high priestess in the Church of Satan. Charles Scudder and Joey Odom were different. They were outsiders. They're murderers, and many of those who weighed in afterward vilified the victims as, quote, devils deserving of their fate. These lifelong losers, whose low rung in life had definitely been their own doing, were nevertheless confident they were somehow better than weirdos from the big city who had only come to Georgia for peace and the appeal of its natural beauty. And I completely agree with her. Yeah. On December 20th, Charles and Joey's bodies were sent to Marsh Crematorium in Walker County, Georgia. The same crematorium 
You good? Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just putting two and two together. This is my reaction to what you're about to say. I told you this yesterday. I don't remember any of this. <laughs> I don't remember you ever asking me if I covered this story. I don't remember saying like, no, I didn't. You said I did. And I don't ever remember like you like this. Wow. Like, I don't remember any of that. I, it's just now hitting me. That's what my <laughs> face, that's what you saw in my face. Well, anyway... This is the same crematorium that Dulce spoke about in episode 23. Um, a real brief version of the story was that basically the owner of this crematorium um, basically got sick and his son took over and his son neglected his duties. And for whatever reason, rather than burning the bodies like he was supposed to do, he just let them pile up on his property. Like a fucking hoarder. Yeah, it was really weird. Honestly, that, that whole story is weird. Ray Brent Marsh was his name, and he has since publicly apologized. And I read something about him having maybe mercury poisoning. Weird. I don't, again, I don't know whether that was just like something for like his defense lawyers or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Um, but in '82, when Charles and Joey's body bodies would have been there, his dad was running the place, and things were being taken care of properly. Oh. His dad was actually a really high up. Uh, figure in the county he was almost made the coroner he just lost out by a few votes so anyway i just thought oh you know, yeah that's that's something that you have to get voted as yeah which i, I remember like I, I i was so fucking weird when i did that story I was like anyways so yeah go listen to episode 23 if you want to learn more about that yeah but again it was just another small link to these other stories that we've covered yeah you know how like i how feel like it's gonna you? i feel like it's gonna start to happen more and more yeah yeah um, so Corpsewood remains to this day a rite of passage for local teens, urban explorers and ghost hunters. But unfortunately, it was set ablaze allegedly by Christian extremists, terrorists, for want of a better word. Yeah. In 1983, um, the chicken house had been burned down just weeks after the arrest of Brock and West, which, you know, it could easily be blamed on vandals. And I think that's what the public were generally hoping for. I was like, oh, it's just kids up to no good. But there had been a lot of threats made about the house itself. They claimed it was an exorcism. This was never officially done. It's just, you know, rumors that the police didn't deny. Lastly, the main source I used for this series was Corpsewood, A True Crime Like No Other by Daniel Ellis. And he actually went, he actually took Teresa to Corpsewood for the first time in 25 years. Wow. Yeah. Now, I think she had been there with the police, um, like, in the earlier years, like, after this happened. But I'm pretty sure he brought her there in, like, 2013, after 25 years of not being there. And she was still suffering with PTSD from that awful night. Um, she has gone on to write her own book about it with, like, um, I think maybe Joey Wells's mom or something. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I'm just going to quote from Ellis's book right here. Just as I was realizing the absurdity of speaking these words in front of Teresa, a most peculiar thing happened. There was a crisp rustling sound all around us, but there was no wind. At first, Teresa and I thought that a flock of birds or a hundred squirrels were disturbing the thick ivy and waxy green leaves of the trees. As the intensity of the rustling increased, drops of water began falling from the trees. Water cascaded all around us, the droplets sparkling in the sunshine. It was beautiful and scintillating, like beads of glass. I assumed it was raining, but when I looked up, there was a bright blue cloudless sky. Evidently, the rain was dew falling from the leaves and vegetation. It was quite calming and very pretty, and yet the forest was completely still. There was no wind event to cause that moisture to fall for a sustained period of time. The rustling leaves were not moving as if animated by the wind. Rather, the leaves behaved as though they were being physically shaken. The leaves vibrated rapidly and loudly, hence our initial impression of animals concealed in the vegetation. And then it abruptly stopped. There was no moisture at all on the path or anywhere else that I could discern. Teresa walked around and pointed it out. That's weird, she said. It's only wet where we are. It's like the trees are crying. Skeptic that I am, I refuse to accept Teresa's hypotheses. Like a fool, 
I commenced shaking the trees and ivy, attempting in vain to replicate the event. Certainly there had to be some rational and scientific explanation. I merely couldn't find it. So maybe there's still a bit of Charles Scudder and Joey Odom still up there in Corpsewood. But yeah, today it lies in ruin. Um, and you can still visit it though. And there are a lot of, like, it still makes for a fascinating place to go. Mm. Uh, I keep equating it to like the Hellfire Club in Dublin because it is this like mysterious large building in the middle of nowhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the story of Charles Scudder, Joey Odom, Kirby Key Phelps and Corpse Wood Murders. Wow, those are very sad. <laughs> I have to go raise my vibrations now. Very sad, but a fascinating story. And um, I really am glad that Andrea pointed it out because I think if I had just glanced at this, I would have been like, it's all sensationalist crap. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I liked it so much was because of how magical Charles was. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he did some shitty things. But it was just that those few inklings of just strangeness yeah throughout the whole thing yeah um anyway before i end this episode completely my sources for this were MotherEarthNews.com, churchofsatan.com wikipedia atlanta magazine daily mail corpsewood a true crime like no other by daniel ellis the corpsewood manor murders in north georgia by amy petula one of those books is a lot worse than the other i'm not going to say which one is the good one or which one is the bad one if if you're interested pick them up read them uh dm me if you want more information but yeah thanks again for listening i hope you all enjoyed this as much as we did yeah um follow us on our socials yeah thank you for all the people who have been rating and reviewing us lately Mm -hmm. uh i think i said it a while ago like just because we've been here a little while doesn't mean we don't still need that stuff yeah so we really appreciate it and it's also just lovely to wake up and have like nice messages like that in the morning you know yeah um yeah stay tuned we are going to try and bust out a couple surprises before the end of halloween i have one for you and uh don't forget to sign up to patreon if you want a little bit more you can get into that group chat with us and we can all shoot the shit have the bands do all that kind of stuff and if you recommend stories i will eventually get to cover them it just takes a little while um but yeah i'm going so (laughs) okay bye I I found out that scuttlebutt meant rumors. Scuttlebutt. Yeah, go out and find out the scuttlebutt. Mm -hmm. Like...